If you go through a design process, by the time you get to the end and you develop a product, making any significant change to that is not only nearly impossible, it's often very costly. A lot of people, when they go to a new location, they buy one of the travel guides to that country. And ideas that are all centered or framed with the goal of supporting identity development. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, educators and innovators, welcome to the electrifying season three of ISSEDU Learn. Ask me anything with your dynamic host, Mike P and Dana. We're not just here to make waves, we're here to ride the tidal waves of your incredible support to the 21,000 strong downloaders and listeners who joined us on this incredible journey. We tip our hats to you. Your unwavering enthusiasm and active engagement fuels the very heartbeat of our mission. This season, we're not holding back. We're unleashing a tsunami of valuable insights, strategies, and practical wisdom that will effortlessly weave into the tapestry of your educational institutions. Whether you're ready to implement change today or set sail on a journey of profound exploration, trust us, we got you covered. For the inside scoop of upcoming events and certification opportunities that rock your world, point your browsers to iss.edu slash events. Are you ready to ride the podcast wave of a lifetime? Mike P and Dana are here to make it happen. Let the learning adventures begin. ISSEDU Learn, Ask Me Anything, Season 3. Dive in. Ladies and gentlemen, educators and change makers, a warm welcome to another enlightening episode of EDU Learn, Ask Me Anything. Proudly brought to you by ISS.edu. I'm your host, Mike P., the educator's best friend. Joining with me today is my fantastic co-host, Dr. Dana Specker-Watts, our Director of Learning Research and Outreach at ISS. Dana, how are you today? It has been a while. I am good. I'm getting over some jet lag, which is always fun, and I'm getting acclimated to freezing cold weather in Princeton this morning. So that's the weather check huh, for today. <laughs> It's There's frost on the ground. Oh, Good God, no. I was in Bangkok two days ago. <laughs> Welcome to November. Now, dear listeners, we're thrilled to have you with us. And this is a season three, episode nine of our podcast. We can't thank you enough for the unwavering support. Uh, remember to hit the subscribe, give us a thumbs up, and leave us a review uh, on your preferred podcast platform. We could be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, and many more. Our mission is clear, to provide you with valuable insights and practical strategies for your educational institution. This season is still packed with illuminating discussions and actionable insights. This one is no different. And don't miss out on any upcoming virtual events and certifications that we have by keeping in the loop and visiting iss.edu slash events. For those seeking career opportunities, you can also go in there to explore our virtual and in-person job fairs. Now let's embark on another knowledge-filled journey together. Today, we have the privilege of hosting another exceptional guest, Darnell Fine. Darnell has recently shared a wealth of knowledge and expertise through one of our courses on EDU Learn platform. The course delved into theoretical and practical aspects of culturally responsive teaching strategies that enabled students to connect grow and thrive in diverse learning environments. Our discussion today centers around culture responsive teaching strategies for global learning, 
But before we get started with the topic, let's go ahead and take a moment to get to know our guest for today. Darnell is a middle school deputy principal in Singapore. He's also an experienced facilitator of adult learning, focusing on curriculum, assessment, and culturally responsive teaching. Darnell, how are you today? Could you just tell us a little bit more about yourself? And also the very first question for today, can you, if you could include it, would be your favorite teacher or mentor that has inspired you? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me, Dana and Mike. There's a lot of teachers who inspire me. Uh, thanks for the introduction. There are teachers that I currently work with who continue to inspire me. But whenever someone asks me the question of a teacher who's inspired me, I always think back to when I was a high school student moving from Minnesota to Atlanta and meeting my ELA or my English language arts teacher, Miss Aliyah Aziz. I didn't get a chance to see her when I went back to Atlanta this last summer, but uh, Miss Aziz, an incredible educator, I had her for 10th grade English language arts. First day I walked into her classroom, I looked at the board, she had the word Africa written up there, not with mm -hmm. the C, but the K. Mm. It's Miss Aziz B. Trippin, no G at the end of tripping, a contraction, an apostrophe. And she was she was an extrovert. She was like, wow, she was boisterous. She she taught me to read critically. I remember she gave me the play The Tempest by Shakespeare. She had me read it once. And then she said, read it again, but through the lens of colonialism and treat the characters as these particular archetypes and tell me what you think. She introduced me to Richard Wright and she gave me multiple perspectives on how to read Native Son. She introduced me to all of these different poets from uh, Gwendolyn Brooks to Langston Hughes. She incorporated works of art into the language arts curriculum and said, I want you to interpret this work of art. There's no context to this work of art. We weren't able to look it up. This is before you can reverse image search on Google. So we had to use our own kind of deep thinking to really understand what the artwork meant. So all of that. Now, it doesn't matter, but uh, you didn't really say what Mrs. Z's was. Was she of the similar color of yourself or? Oh, yeah. Mrs. Z's was a black woman. Okay. Or is, is a black woman. Still lives in Atlanta. Uh, she's retired, but she's still teaching part-time. Yeah, black woman, Mrs. Z's, black wo Muslim woman from Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. Well, we got to go find Mrs. Z's. Yeah. There's a job fair coming up. Darnell, it's so awesome. I think you really point out something. I don't know if you meant to do it, but like representation matters, right? When you can see yourself in educators in your school and you identify with different aspects of, of their identities, it all of a sudden can click something and switch something on in you. And I remember I had a female like women's lit, like I, she looked at everything through like, like a women's rights um, viewpoint for all the literature that we were, that we were reading. And it just, from then on, like the way I approached every subject was influenced because of this person. Right. And like having teachers and educators in the building of all different represent all different types of identities, I think is so important for our students to be able, because they bring that approach and lens to education and it just can make all the difference. Yeah. 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 I think that's true that representation matters and it's powerful that my high school experience represented a number of black 
educators who looked like me, but I think I also met Black educators who weren't necessarily aligned with my philosophy. And, and I often hear that representation matters, but it's important to recognize that representation isn't all that matters and representation isn't enough. We also need people who look like us to continue to interrogate systems and not be assimilated to systems that often push us to the margins. So uh, I say representation matters, but I also say all skin folk ain't kin folk. And that's somebody who look. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to represent like the equity values that you're really hoping are grounded in a a learning space. Now we do uh, speak of representation and such, but in order to represent yourself properly, I guess you have to identify yourself properly as well. That comes with self-reflection and that's definitely a powerful tool for growth. So I just wanted to know if you could describe a moment when self-reflection on your teaching practices led to a positive change in your approach to culturally responsive teaching. Are you an educator looking to elevate your career? Consider Moreland University, your gateway to success in international schools. They offer fully online programs with flexible start dates and affordable tuition rates, allowing you to balance work and personal life. Moreland University isn't your typical institution. Say goodbye to dull lectures and hello to engaging, interactive learning with passionate educators like yourself. It's a hands-on education that sparks creativity and prepares you for the real-world challenges. With Moreland University, you can earn a prestigious U.S. teaching certification or a master's degree in education from anywhere in the world. Their programs are designed to empower you to become a leader in your field. Don't wait. Take your steps forward, transforming your career today. Visit www.moreland.edu and apply now. Let Moreland University help you make a difference in student lives worldwide, one classroom at a time. Your journey to becoming an exceptional educator starts with Moreland University. A brighter future begins with you. Yeah, for me, it's like it's also not enough to have reflection or self-reflection. You have to have that critical self-reflection where where I have to name. What's the difference? Yeah, yeah. Like self-reflection is like, hey, I might I may be able to identify myself in the mirror. But critical self-reflection is like I'm identifying myself in the mirror and I'm pointing out what I don't like. Mm-hmm. So my first year of teaching was horrible, y'all. Like terrible. I did some good stuff. I still have some of my lesson plans from my first year of teaching. But I also had to admit when I was being overly rigid and the certain systems that I was grounding my pedagogy in were reinforcing stereotypes, reinforcing kind of pushing kids out like a punitive system of writing kids' names on the board and and giving them three strikes and then telling them I have to exclude you from the classroom or sending you down to the office reinforced a lot of systems that I said I did not agree with. And, And when I look back at my first year of teaching and I look back at who was being pushed out of my classroom or being excluded from my learning space, there were students who looked like me. So that like the self reflection is like, oh yeah, yeah, like, I'm reflecting and I'm doing this really cool activity and I'm noticing that I am teaching about sub-Saharan Africa and all of these diverse books. But critical self-reflection is talking about the potential stereotypes I may be perpetuating in teaching those texts if I'm not recognizing the diversity of Africa as a continent or if I'm not thinking about how I might include more diverse voices 
in my particular curriculum or how I might be reinforcing certain systems of oppression. Thank you for that. We have a question um, that Mike just shared with me, and it's, what are some practical strategies for fostering an inclusive and respective learning environment where students from diverse backgrounds feel valued and heard? Yeah, that's a really good question. I love that question. I would say students are the resource. And and I always use the Emily style quote, uh, half of the curriculum walks into the room and the students do. So as a very practical strategy, ask your students if they're feeling engaged. Like give them an anonymous survey. Ask them if they're feeling challenged. Ask them what your classroom management is like. Ask them if they're really making meaning in your classroom. And then ask them how you can do better. And oftentimes students will have the practical strategies because they've experienced so much good teaching in other spaces. Like, and they know themselves, they know how they learn and what they actually need because they've been in educational environments for so long. And even if they're new to an educational environment, if they're pre-K or kindergarten, you still should listen deeply to how they experience the world and what they prefer and their preferences. So as a practical strategy, I would say, how are you auditing student voice and listening to students and really understanding what it is that they actually need? Ask them, how do you feel supported when you're in a classroom? How am I supporting you? What else do you need? How are you not getting what you need? What can I do differently? And even asking some of your colleagues to run those focus groups if you're not doing an anonymous survey so that students feel safe enough to express and share their thoughts about your pedagogy in the learning environment. You know, you bring up, and if we tie what you're talking about right now back to what you were also just talking about, like from the beginning of teaching, I think teaching is a profession that we constantly evolve, right? And I go back to like, when you were talking, I was thinking about like when I first started teaching, and I was like, ooh, some of the mistakes I made. But even in my last year of in the classroom, I used to always ask my students, you know, how anonymously, like, how can I do better, blah, blah, blah. And my students actually pointed out that I was gravitating towards more of the extroverts in the classroom than the introverts. And like, I was 25 plus years in as a teacher at that point. Like, and you don't realize the more you teach, the more you realize you don't know, right? <laughs> and, and there's kind of a need for constantly self-improvement in our profession because you do change. And also just the way you teach can change and evolve. And listening to the students, man, that's, it's huge. They see more than we realize. Definitely. Definitely. Some of my favorite educators are are those educators that have been working at my school for 25 years and still get super excited about new ideas. And they're still kind of like a new person comes in and they're willing to try things and innovate or explore something that's different. Um, there's a, a sixth grade language arts teacher who is so incredibly reflective and critically reflective about his practice. And he's been at the school for almost 20 years, if not 20 years. And whenever a new teaching partner comes in, he's sitting down and trying to understand how he can improve his practice. I think the stereotype is often Uh, Teachers who have been teaching for that long are set in their ways, but I've seen some veteran seasoned teachers still engage in some deep professional learning and willingness to shift their practice and think flexibly and and adaptively about how they engage in, in working with students and working with their colleagues. 
Same. I had a teacher at a school a few years ago who said to me, he's like, Dean, I want your help on the side. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he's like, well, technology is moving so fast, but I want to retire on my own terms, not because I've been outdated, but I'm often afraid in faculty meetings to raise my hand and be like, I'm sorry, I'm totally lost. Like, I don't know how to do that. Or, you know, he's like, it's so fast. So will you help me so that I can continue to do what I love until I decide that I'm no longer, you know, relevant or ready to retire or whatever. But I was so impressed that like some of the best teachers are the best learners, right? Like, they just want to keep learning how to best work with kids and help them fall in love with learning. I think also what's beautiful about what you just said is that teacher asked for coaching and ask for help. And oftentimes there needs to be a strong relationship established with with colleagues to be able to, in a strong culture at the school, to be able to admit when you don't know something and to embrace ignorance as also a way of being. I I think there have been several schools that I've gone into as an educator and admit it when I didn't know something and people look at me and they go, wow, you don't know that? And it kind of shuts down learning. But if we look at learning as not something that ends in the 12th grade or ends in grad school or undergrad, but learning being a lifelong responsibility, like that is so incredibly powerful. And I think it's even more powerful when the educators within the school are modeling that learning for the youngest learners within the building of saying, I'm also going to classes or I'm also doing professional learning on Wednesdays after school. And here's what I'm learning. And I'm learning alongside you. That's even more powerful for the youngest learners within an organization or a school to actually see that the person I'm learning from is also engaging in an inquiry process. As an educational professional, you likely understand the positive and crucial role inclusion has on classroom culture. And you might be on the lookout for a community of like-minded educators. Senya International is that community. Senya is a nonprofit organization that advocates for individuals with disabilities and promotes inclusive educational practices across the globe. With a network of educators, families, students, and professionals, Senya offers connection, professional learning, and support for educators like you. Connect with the Senya community via our membership program or a local chapter in your area. Enjoy professional learning with the Senya community via our podcasts, online certification program, and in-person or virtual conferences. Support Senya through our sponsorships, awards, and scholarship program. So, what are you waiting for? For more information, head to our website, senyainternational.org. That's S-E-N-I-A international.org. And together, we continue to make a difference and fulfill our vision of living in an inclusive world. Thank you for that, Darnell. Spoke about teachers being reflective and a little bit about student-centered learning. Just wanted to ask if he could give us a little bit more of hands-on activities and on experimental learning. If you could share some examples on how this can be done to promote culturally responsive teaching. I hope that made sense. Yeah, yeah, it definitely makes sense. And I think a lot of it is contextual. So for instance, I remember working with this one teacher in Atlanta and 
outside of her window, she saw that the hill that was like leading into the garden at our school was eroding and it was tearing up the garden. And there was one kid named Kyle. Kyle was, I don't even want to say he was an inspiring botanist. I went to rehome my dog at his house and he didn't want to talk to me about the dog that I was giving him. He wanted to talk about all of the plants in his yard. So anyways, Kyle was in her class and Kyle also saw that, that this was happening. And what this class did was they brought their math skills and their science skills and their technology skills to the garden. And they figured out how to build a retaining wall and how to actually make an immediate change within our school environment so that we can protect the community garden while also addressing the erosion issues that were happening on the hill right next to the garden. And it doesn't seem big, like this big action thing, but it was big for our community. So like a very practical hands-on thing that you can do first is to assess the needs of your school. What are the problems that are happening at your school that you might need to change? And what might seem small to us could be really big for the learners that you're working with within your organization. So uh, ask your students, what's something that you see as a need? What's something that could make our school feel a deeper sense of belonging? What's problems that you are able to identify within the organization? So this problem-based learning approach can lead to community action, which is one of the tenets of culturally responsive teaching. Now, I also don't want to overly sanitize culturally responsive teaching because often when you're dealing with culturally responsive teaching, you are really tackling social problems and, and community problems that deal with identity. For me, when I when I look at Atlanta and the school that I was at with the community garden, a lot of our activism tied in environmental justice with racial justice. When you look at the Project South, they also had a community garden and they were doing work around environmental justice linked to racial justice. So it's not minimizing identity when we engage in this work. It's having students identify the problems and then discuss how they impact minoritized groups. And I can give several examples of things that we've done or I've done in the past that did just that. Environmental. Do you find it, can I ask, do you find it harder to do this work in Singapore? Me personally? Mm -hmm. I did not find it hard when I was in the classroom. I found it exciting. I found a lot of different opportunities for students to explore. I remember there was a, a group of South Asian students who were looking at our admissions policies at our school, and they saw that it was prioritizing people that didn't look like them. So they did their own investigation, and it wasn't that they were changing any of the admissions policies or bylaws within our organization, but they were critically reflecting on the problems within our organization and how they felt excluded. And they were still able to access some deep exploration about who they are and the systems that made them feel as if they didn't belong. So I did not find it hard because it was my, the, my way of teaching and my way of engaging. I've also done community service projects with other schools and students from other schools who in Singapore who also were exploring who they were, their identities, and how to create poetry and, and other written expression to represent who they were and to share that back with their community. 
I ask that because we often hear, I think, in international schools that culturally responsive teaching is something that really only is needed in the United States because we're the only ones who seem to have this issue. And it's like, really? (laughs) Do you understand what culturally responsive teaching is? Um, So that's why I asked because we get pushback sometimes, I think, in the international school community because they say, well, we're international. So we already understand this. Mm. We're already doing this. We're doing it well. And you're like, not really. Yeah, that's funny because on one hand, in certain contexts, folks will say that this work is too American. And then when you get to the United States, folks will say this is anti-American because you're speaking it. So like the thing isn't wherever it exists, it's going to be met with criticism because you're interrogating systems that have given so many people in power privilege and, and influence. So it's not that it's not relevant. It's an affront on the way that the system is. So when I think about culturally responsive teaching, I think it's perfectly situated in international school communities because it comes with such a diversity of folks from different backgrounds. And basically what culturally responsive teaching says is how can we become culturally competent in those different diverse ways of being in diverse cultural orientations, while also addressing the inequities that create lack of access and exclusion for people who are coming from diverse backgrounds. And that can happen, that should happen anywhere. The other thing that I would say is if you're minimizing identity, you're not actually seeing that that your school environment is already culturally responsive. It's just culturally responsive to those from the dominant group. The default is responding to a culture already and, and representing a culture already. Our schools aren't culturally neutral terrains. Like our schools are influenced by culture and politics. It's just that some cultures are deemed normal so that we see it as just the common sense reality of, of schools. I'll give another example before I go on. It's funny how like in international schools, I often hear this when I'm in international schools, but we're in international school. But then when it comes to hiring, all of that critique about us being an international school and too American goes out the window when we start hiring candidates. Like look at your candidates in your international schools, your applicant pool. How many of them are American? And how many of them may be Western that have graduated from American schools or schools from the West? What happened to all of that criticism that culturally responsive teaching and diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice was too American? Like, we're not holding the same standard when it comes to other systems. So it's not the fact that this is coming from America that is threatening. It's that it's threatening your power. But when things are American that reinforce and codify power, especially from members of dominant groups, They don't receive the same level of scrutiny. And I wonder why. And I know why, but I'm just going to say I wonder why. Hi, everyone. This is Aaron Moniz, one of the co-founders of Inspire Citizens. My name is Scott Jameson, and I'm the Global Collaborations Lead for Inspire Citizens. We help inspire schools to live their mission of global citizenship. We look at existing units through the lens of empathy to impact and connect student learning with themes like sustainable development, harmony with nature, social justice, and the holistic well-being of our community. We also work with students to co-design student leadership programs. Another way that we support educators is through our Global Citizenship Certificate in partnership with ISS. 
This certificate program involves best practice resources for global citizenship education, interactive opportunities to engage with other cohort members, a great team of coaches to walk you through your learning, and optional opportunities to connect via seminars with other participants from around the world. Please visit inspirecitizens.org and click on the Inspire Educators tab to register for the Global Citizenship Certificate, visit the ISS website, or go to the ISS EduLearn Passport to register today. At Inspire Citizens, we believe that the young people in our schools have the potential to lead change and inspire others through their work towards a more sustainable future. We look forward to working with you and we hope that together, our resources and your contacts can help to create a more harmonious future. Thank you for that, Darnell. And I just wanted to take this time as uh, the time is slowly creeping at the end to us. I know there's a lot of recent research and theories that is coming out about culturally responsive teaching. Just wanted to know if you wanted to share any of them with us, any methods or classroom interactions that you have come across. That seems very interesting that we should know about. Yeah, there's a lot of recent research, and the research has been going on for a long time. Even if it's not named culturally responsive teaching, this work has been done for over 100 years. I think about Gertrude uh, Ayers, uh, a principal in Harlem, who used to take her, her West Indian kids and her Black American kids out and do community projects that were social justice oriented and community oriented. That was culturally responsive. And I think about like the more recent research around culturally responsive teaching that is situated in social emotional learning and how our SEL curriculum needs to be culturally responsive and represent the diverse cultural backgrounds of, of students within schools. So I'm not going to quote all of the theories, but there's one person that I routinely, routinely cite. And that's Dr. Gloria Latson Billings. Like she is the OG of culturally responsive teaching. Uh, I think she coined the term culturally relevant pedagogy, but and then people kind of built off of her work from 1994. And she's still publishing, she's still speaking. I think the most recent kind of iteration of culturally relevant pedagogy has been culturally sustaining pedagogy by a uh, uh, I think it's Paris and Aline, and they talk about culturally sustaining pedagogy as picking up where the beat has dropped from culturally relevant pedagogy and culturally responsive teaching. And basically, they say it's not enough to leverage our students' cultures. We also have to affirm their culture. It's not enough to leverage their cultures to meet academic standards. We have to affirm their cultures in their own right and recognize their cultures in their own right, not as a tool to get students to meet academic standards, but as a way of having them celebrate and affirm their own culture, regardless of if they're meeting academic standards or not. And I am oversimplifying their theories. I am happy to share the most recent research around culturally sustaining pedagogy, but essentially it's not just leveraging students' cultures for them to meet academic standards. It's helping them recognize and see the value and beauty in who they are, regardless of meeting academic standards, but it does help with meeting academic standards. Thank you very much for that, Darnell. Our time has now come to its end. 
if you wanted to let the listeners know where they can reach out, whether it's email, uh, your website, or some sort of social media, since we have about 10 of them nowadays? Wow. I am not too into social media, but if, if you Google my name and find my LinkedIn, I will eventually be on LinkedIn. And I think I have a website that I actually don't use, but it, it is deijleader.com. I actually don't use it. And this is the first time I'm publicly even sharing it. So you can look at deijleader.com and you can find me there. Uh, but you can also find me via email at darnellfine uh, at gmail.com if, if you want to follow up or if you need any resources. Well, Darnell, this is a podcast that has about 23,000 listeners. So I would uh, highly recommend to just go do something about that website. <laughs> By the time and everyone goes to it, you know, they can know all about you. But Darnell, now, thank you so much. Yes. Mike didn't tell me there was 23,000 uh, listeners. I hope <laughs> I hope y'all aren't using the video for this because I would have dressed a little bit differently. Let's just use the audio for this. But I got you. To the 23,000 listeners, email me and, and I'll give you an updated website. <laughs> that is a crazy, crazy amount of people emailing you. <laughs> You heard it here first, guys. Go ahead. Shoot Darnell an email for let's, me. Let's edit the email out. Never mind. <laughs> do a center of the email. I don't know who's listening to this podcast. Y'all can just go to the LinkedIn. <laughs> oh, well, now it's the no, LinkedIn, guys. <laughs> LinkedIn, Darnell, fine. Thank you so much, Darnell, for your time today. Dana, did you have any last words for Darnell? No, Darnell, I always enjoy not just talking with you, but learning alongside you. You teach me so much and I just value you as a human being so very much. So thank you so much, Darnell. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Dana, for having me. Thank you so much, Darnell, for being here today and sharing your valuable insights and experiences with us. It's been a pleasure having you on ISS EDU Learn. Ask me anything. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you found this episode inspiring and informative, please be sure to hit the like, subscribe, and share the AMA with your educator friends. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes. Until next time, keep exploring, keep learning, keep making a positive impact in the world of education. Until next time, bye-bye, my fellow educators. Mm-hmm.